This week, we're going to be answering your questions and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. Greetings, everyone, from Quarantine Studios. What crazy times we're living in right now. It's a pretty challenging thing to be stuck at home when you're an outdoor enthusiast and a travel enthusiast, but we're all going to get through this together. Hopefully you guys are staying home and staying safe. I'm going to do my best to create as much content for everyone as I can. I know boredom is going to be the enemy for a while. Um, and to that end, I put all of my tutorials on sale for 50% off. So if you've ever been on the fence about picking up my tutorials, you can pick them up now for 50% off. If you use the offer code, this too shall pass. Also, another little bit of news, the Out of Chicago team, the same people that have done the conferences at Out of Moab, Out of Acadia, Out of Yosemite, Out of Oregon, they are doing the Out of Chicago Live conference, which is essentially an online photo conference that you can attend from home. It's going to have people like, well, myself, Thomas Heaton, Adam Gibbs, Gavin Hardcastle, Alex Noriega, Aaron Bobnick, David Kingham, just so many amazing people are going to be a part of this. It's pretty affordable as well. I believe they're selling tickets to it for $300. It's a weekend long, pretty cool way to defeat the quarantine boredom. So I'll leave links to that as well as where you can find my tutorials down in the description box. Hopefully some of this stuff helps the quarantine blues because I think boredom is going to be the enemy for the next few weeks. But you know what? Like I said, this too shall pass. It won't be long and we'll be out in nature doing our thing again. And I personally can't wait. So with that, let's jump into this week's episode where I answer questions that came in over on the Facebook group. First question is from Simon. He says, when was the last photo that you took that you felt this is fine straight out of camera and what one was it? Just the way my brain works when I do photography, I'm always thinking about what I'm going to do with it in post-process and that's probably why he's asking the question. But there's a lot of photos that are more like, you know, wildlife photography, those kind of things where I really don't do all that much and it was probably exactly that. There, I've taken several several like birds in flight type shots that you really don't need to do much to, but even those I end up processing quite a bit. So it's been a very long time. I'm not sure when that was. Maybe actually, you know what? It was probably the last time I shot NFL was the last time that I really didn't do much to a photo simply because there's not much that you do to sports photography. I definitely do a little bit of noise reduction and that kind of thing, but most photos, I'm always thinking about what I'm going to do in post-processing because a raw file does not look like real life. Raw files, by definition, are very, very flat. So you have to add contrast and saturation to even bring it back to reality. So it's been a very long time since I felt that a photo was good enough straight out of camera. Jason asks, would I be willing to go back to Canon if the R5 is as good as the rumors say? Ooh. Let me start by saying that I'm kind of actually skeptical about some of the rumors about the new Canon R5 that some of the specs have been leaked about. 
especially the video specs, they seem a little bit too good to be true. But to your question, Jason, if it's as good as they say, would I be tempted? There is a part of me that that misses the the interface with Canon cameras. Sony interfaces, you know, I'm talking about the LCD screen, some of the buttons, you know, those kind of things. They, they're not as nice and refined as on a Canon camera. But for the longest time, Sony sensors have just outperformed Canon sensors and video spec wise, especially Sony's have just outcompeted Canon for quite a while now. And in my own journey, video is becoming more and more important. And so the video specs of a camera and the functionality of a camera is becoming more and more important. But if I could do what I can do with my Sony on a Canon camera, I would be very tempted to switch back. Now I'd very much not look forward to having to sell all of my gear again. That is an incredibly expensive proposition to switch camera systems. But with some of the rumors of what that R5 is going to be capable of, I would be tempted. I'm not sure that I would do it. John asked, do I ever use the pen tool much in Photoshop? I used to use the pen tool when I was doing more product photography. It's pretty handy for, you know, if you're doing product photography and you're needing to make a very crisp outline of say a wine bottle, which is the case that I would use it in, or maybe real estate. I found myself using the pen tool at times, but never in landscape photography. I find that the quick select tool, once you refine the, the mask, refine the edge is usually going to do the trick. If a luminosity mask does not. Zach asks, is it irresponsible to continue with real estate shoots right now? even if the house is vacant and you wipe everything down before and after, and if you maintain social distancing. That's a tough one. I don't know that I'm the right person to answer this stuff, but I will tell you what I'm choosing to do. I'm choosing to try to lead by example and not go out and shoot during this time. I live in Washington state. There's been a stay at home order. The governor has said you can go out to go on walks for mental and physical health, but do not leave the house any more than you have to. And I feel like if I leave the house to do photography, it's probably not going to be the end of the world, but because I am a visible person, it's going to have an effect on people outside of me because I will go out and shoot. People will see me go out and shoot. Some people will go out and shoot as a result and I will create a bit of a domino effect. So for me personally, I'm not going to go out and shoot. When it comes to doing photography gigs like vacant houses, I think that a person can get away with it, especially if it's a really important part of your income. A lot of us are going to be struggling and suffering, you know, being out of work and maybe real estate when you're photographing vacant, unoccupied houses is going to be a good option for those people. Just make sure that like Zach says, you're taking all the precautions you can. Maybe you're wearing gloves, you're showing up with disinfecting wipes. It's crazy to even say this stuff, but you really have to try to protect yourself and whoever enters the home after you as well. So if you do choose to do that, just do it the right way and be safe. And maybe don't broadcast it to the world that you're doing it because you don't want to have that domino effect. Jennifer asks, at what point did you decide that it was time to start putting your work out there? I pretty much started putting my work out there from the very beginning. Looking back on it, I was, I'm pretty embarrassed by all that work. But at the time, 
it was pretty important for my growth, I think, because I think most creative people really feed off the encouragement of others. And even though I wasn't a good photographer, all it took was one positive comment. It doesn't didn't matter whether it was coming from Aunt Ruth or my mom or whoever. All it took was one positive comment on how beautiful the photo was, and it gave me the encouragement to go out and keep doing it. And I think that's one of the things that you really get from sharing your work online is just the encouragement to continue on. You might think that your photography sucks, and it might suck, but somebody out there might like it. You know, just getting that positive reinforcement can really be a powerful encouragement to keep going forward. For that reason, I think that you should start sharing your work pretty much immediately. So don't be afraid to put it out there. Rob asks, what is my current post-processing workflow? The order of layers and adjustments and why? So my workflow always starts in Lightroom and I do some basic raw adjustments where I'm masking out sharpness, I'm trying to get my white balance correct, I'm doing those kind of color adjustment things, maybe doing small tweaks to exposure, those kind of things. If it's just a single image, I'll open that up as a smart object inside of Photoshop. From there, I often make a duplicate of that smart object and I will start to even out the exposure if it's kind of a wide angle landscape. So if we have an image with, you know, foreground that is dark and a sky that is bright, I'll often make a copy of that smart object layer and then I'll darken the sky, brighten the foreground a bit blend those together. And I call that exposure balancing where I'm just trying to balance out the tones. From there, I start adding contrast. So then contrast comes next where I'm most likely adding contrast to the highlights and the brighter parts of the image and kind of bringing down the brightness with a little bit of contrast. And then from there, I start thinking about accentuating what I like. So I'm start to dodge and burn. So typically it goes balancing exposure, adding contrast, and then I start to begin my dodging and burning process. Those would be the creative edits, trying to create a visual path. My most destructive edits that I do, which would be like an Orton effect or cloning or sharpness, those kinds of things, that always comes at the very end because those are going to be rasterized layers that I can't really go back and tweak. So I always save those destructive layers for the very last, the very end part of the workflow. And then I typically save it. So it goes back into Lightroom. And then if I'm going to post that to the web, I will do my web sharpening from there based off that master file. Having said that though, every image is different and my workflow is different just based on the image. The most important thing though is that I'm trying to do the most destructive layers at the very end of the workflow and trying to work non-destructively early in the workflow. That way I can go back and tweak things without too much effort. Lila asks, I'm curious how you edit shots taken around twilight or blue hour. Do I just using the calibration box in Lightroom on shots like that? When it comes to twilight blue hour shots, a lot of times the, the blue channel just dominates everything. You know, if you accidentally add too much vibrance, for example, to an image like that, is the blues just get way out of control. So a lot of times what you need to consider in a twilight image is to make sure that you're not oversaturating your shot. And it's also really helpful if you can somehow find some warm tones to embellish or accentuate in a shot like that because a blue hour shot is just going to be a wash of blue tones otherwise. 
So in a blue hour shot, I'm really focusing on color, trying to make sure that the blue channel is just not over dominating the shot and to making sure that it's not getting oversaturated. The HSL panel is going to be really useful for that. And actually the, the white balance slider is going to be really important for that too, because if you go with like a daylight white balance in a blue hour type shot, you're not going to have any color separation at all. So a lot of times I will warm up my color temperature as much as I dare just so the blues are not dominating the entire shot. Trying to get a little bit of color separation, meaning some color variance between maybe there's some like tufts of dried grass in the foreground. You don't want the dry grass to be blue as well as the sky. You want there to be some color variation. And you're gonna do that through a combination of the HSL panel and choosing the appropriate white balance. Johnny asks, how often do I go back to old photos and re-edit? Do I have hard drives full of shots that I haven't got to yet? What is my photography workflow after I return from a trip? If I've taken thousands of photos, how much gets deleted? So the honest answer is that most of them don't ever get deleted. I'm not the type of person to delete many images unless it's something I absolutely know I'll never do anything with ever. So yeah, I have an entire NAS system full of photos and, and old video footage, but I do go back and re-edit old photos quite often because I find that as I continue to shoot and go to the same locations over and over and over, I get fewer and fewer keepers as I return to those locations because oftentimes it's just tough to beat some of the conditions that I've got in the past. A lot of times there's those magic shoots where you just get the light or the conditions that you'll never be able to beat again. And it's really nice to go back to those old shoots with fresh knowledge and fresh post-processing skills and reprocess those older photos because it's amazing how much better photos end up with a more deft touch in post-processing. So I find myself constantly going back to those old photo shoots. Sometimes I get really down on myself when I haven't taken what I deem to be a good photo in a while because, you know, I feel like I don't have anything good to process. If I go back and reprocess an old photo with good conditions, suddenly I feel like a good photographer again because given the good conditions, I can create good photographs. Sometimes when you're constantly trying to make mountains out of molehills, so to speak, where you're trying to create something out of nothing with those photo shoots that you didn't have the good conditions, it can start to, at least with me, it can start to really wear on your self-confidence. So for me, it's also a way of staying confident that yes, I, I can still create good photos if I get the conditions. It's just been a while since I got those conditions. I do wish that I went through and I culled my photography a bit more. I have a lot of images backed up that really don't need to be backed up. And maybe that's something that I can do during all of this downtime is go back and make some space on some of those older hard drives with shoots that I know I'm not gonna do anything with. Jeremy asks, what is my favorite, seascapes, landscapes, or astrophotography? And has the preference changed over the years? Yeah, it actually has. I used to absolutely love astrophotography. I find though that I don't like staying up as late anymore. <laughs> and I also feel like the Milky Way used to excite me far more than it does now. I think my favorite by far are seascapes just because of the changing nature of it. Photographing moving water is so entertaining just because it's never the same twice. 
And even if you don't get a good photo, you you still have fun doing it. And sometimes photographing seascapes is just far more entertaining than any other type of photography because you never really know what you're going to get. When I love landscapes the most is probably when I have really dramatic, interesting weather. And it's for the same reason that I love seascapes because you never know what's going to happen with that weather. Photographing storms, photographing lightning, those kind of things. There's that element of the unknown that gives that it gives it that sense of excitement and just not knowing what's going to happen next. That can be some of the most exciting shoots for me. And it's the same reason that I love seascapes. I don't get that with a night sky. You know what you're going to get. You're going to get a Milky Way over the top of something. Eventually, it just starts to feel redundant. It's kind of like getting the same exact sunset every single night. You can only photograph that same exact sunset every single night before you start to get bored with it. And I think that's what happened with me with astrophotography. Dan asks, are there any cheaper alternatives to the Wacom tablet that I'm aware of? Or is there a way to tether an iPad to Photoshop in lieu of a specific tablet for it? Now, that's an interesting question. I know that there are people that like to edit on an iPad. I'm pretty sure that if you just hooked up an external monitor to that iPad, if there's a way to do that, I'm not an iPad user, you could probably use that, that pad as a Wacom tablet. Having said that, as much as a person uses a Wacom tablet, if you are a person that really dedicates yourself to just throwing your mouse away, it's worth every penny. I've had mine for, I guess, four years now. Is that right? Three, four years. And I use it every single day for everything. And I can't even use a mouse anymore because I have so much more fine motor skill with a pen tablet than I ever had with a mouse. It's just so much better. I've more than gotten my money's worth out of this Wacom tablet. And I think that anybody else would too, if they would just have the discipline to put your mouse away and just forget about it. You really do not need a mouse once you get adept at using a Wacom tablet. I know that there are more affordable options, but like anything, you get what you pay for with a tablet. And in a lot of cases, what you're paying for with the more expensive Wacom tablets is just the, the variance of sensitivities and the really fine resolution. So when you make a very small, precise movement with your pen, it's going to be reflected on your computer. You could probably save some money, but you would probably end up regretting it or not loving your tablet as much in the end. Jordan asks, do I use a noddle slide for panoramas? And if I do, what do I do to ensure that they stitch well and post? I have never used noddle slides for panoramas because I find that as long as you're using an L bracket and you're not getting incredibly close to a foreground object, you really don't need one. For those that don't know, a noddle slide is a bracket that you'll add to your camera. So when you shoot a panorama, it's going to line up the sensor with the center of your panning motion. That way you're going to get far less parallax effect. When that comes the most into play is when you're really close to a foreground object. I find that most times when you're shooting a panorama, you're very, very seldom close to that foreground object. Honestly, of all the panoramas that I've ever shot, I can maybe count one or two times that I wish I had a noddle slide. If I was a really serious panorama shooter where I only shoot panoramas, I could foresee a noddle slide being worth it. But for the casual photographer that shoots, 
you know, just what they're presented with. I really don't think that they are needed provided you have a good L bracket. By having an L bracket, it puts the camera directly over the top of the tripod. In most cases, you're not going to run into much parallax effect that way. Matthias asks, after burnout, what is the process to reignite the creative side and my drive to pick up the camera? Definitely something that I have struggled with in the past, and maybe I'm still struggling with that as well. The biggest thing for me is to allow myself to have a break from it. And that's for me, especially that's something that I struggle with because I have a podcast about it. I have a YouTube channel about it. I teach workshops. I go out and do photography. I don't do anything other than photography, essentially. And so burnout is is always something that somebody like me is going to struggle with. The biggest thing is to allow myself the opportunity to have a break from photography. Anything that you love, if you if you go for a while without doing it, you're going to start to have that craving and that that desire to go back out and do it. And I think that a lot of us are going to be feeling that at the end of this, you know, quarantine period. By the end of this summer, we're all going to be really really wanting to go out and spend some serious time outside with our cameras. I think that starving yourself from something that you're burnt out from is a great cure for dealing with burnout. Just allow yourself to think about something else for a while. The human brain does not do well when it thinks about one thing all the time every day. Second thing is to stop focusing on what you're doing and just appreciate what other people are doing. Appreciate the, the photography of other people and the, you know, the artworks of other people. Maybe look at some painters for a while. Stop trying to analyze what you could do to be more like them and, and just appreciate it for what it is. Allow yourself that disconnect from constantly trying to create photography and you will start to get the drive and get the passion back for wanting to go out and shoot. Because if you think about it, the people that want to shoot the most are the ones that don't get to do it very often. And if you put yourself in that same position that they're in, you too will want to get out and do photography more. Leonardo asks, what were my first steps to becoming a professional photographer? Also, Joshua asks, how did I go from hobby in photography to doing it full time? It's a pretty common question that I get asked. And the honest answer is I just let it happen organically. I didn't try to force it. I had my full time day job. I went to that job weekends and in the evenings I went out and did photography. I started off as a portrait photographer and a real estate photographer and it was those portraits and real estate shoots and some product photography, wedding photography. Those were the ways that I paid my bills in the in the beginning. My landscape photography in those early days were actually was not very good because the, you know, the post-processing skill set for being a decent landscape photographer is completely different. But as my post-processing got better, my landscape photography got better as well. And after a while of, you know, working really hard on my landscape photography, people started wanting to know what I knew. And that's that's what transitioned into me teaching it as much as I do. Before I was teaching it, I was selling prints locally. I would do little gallery pop ups and like local restaurants and coffee shops, hotels. I would do meet and greets. And I sold a decent number of prints that way. It wasn't enough to pay my bills but it was pretty good. Everything that happened in my photography career was totally organic and I didn't rush it. I let it happen first. The most important thing you can do is just work on getting better, work on your skill set, and put yourself out there. 
don't try to rush the process by you know going full time before you're able to pay your bills with it. It wasn't until I was able to pay all of my bills with photography that I've quit my day job. Dennis asks, are there any other apps that I use to help predict cloud conditions? He uses clear outside and weather bug to forecast, but he still has a hard time determining if the clouds will produce epic skies. Another app that I use in addition to clear outside and weather bug is one from Weather Underground that's called Storm. It's just a really good radar app where you can see overhead radars, but you can also get overhead satellite images, which show you exactly where those clouds are. Dramatic, epic skies. You're always looking for those kind of mid-level clouds. High clouds are typically what I call high wispy clouds. A lot of times those can be very, very colorful, but they're not very dramatic. For drama, you typically want medium clouds because those medium clouds are going to have more texture and shape in them. Cumulus clouds and mammatus clouds and lenticular clouds, those are always going to be kind of in that medium range. So a lot of times you want this nice combination of high and medium so you get both color and texture for those dramatic skies. So clear outside will help with that. But what storm will help with is showing you where the edge of that storm is going to be or the edge of those clouds is going to be. You need that sun to be able to poke through those clouds, ideally when the sun is low on the horizon. So if, you know, 50 miles to the west, you have a nice big opening, you know that the sun is going to be able to poke underneath those clouds. And that's when you're going to get some of those really crazy, colorful sunsets. Francis asks, about thunderstorms in the Palouse, what app or website do I use? What gear do I use to protect the camera and how do I set up my camera? So when I'm chasing a lightning storm, regardless of where I'm at, I typically use Weatherbug and Storm. Those are the two apps that I use, both of which can track where each lightning strike is happening and it helps me predict the path of that storm. As far as protecting my gear, oftentimes I don't use anything, but when I know I'm going to be shooting out in a heavy rain, I'll typically use just one of those really cheap $2 plastic bags that you can get. I think it's um, Optech that you can get one that's just got a drawstring on either side. And the, typically the way that I set up my camera is I will set it up in a time-lapse mode. I'll try to get as long of an exposure as I can without having to use too much of an ND filter. The strongest ND filter I'll ever use for lightning is a three stop because I don't want to make that lightning strike too faint. If you were to throw a 10 stop ND filter on, granted you're gonna get that nice long exposure so the likelihood of catching that lightning strike is much higher, but the lightning strike is going to be so faint because it's happening so fast and through such a strong ND filter that's going to be incredibly faint. In fact, you might not even see it. A three stop, it's still going to be fairly faint, but it's not going to be so bad. Ideally, you can catch a lightning bolt with no filter at all. So this means I'm often shooting at like ISO 50, F18 maybe, trying to get the longest shutter speed I can because the longer your shutter speed is, the more likely that lightning strike's going to happen during that exposure. So I'll set it up with as long of an exposure as I can manage, shoot it in a time lapse with as short a gap between those images as I can manage, and I'll just shoot a time lapse. And if I don't get a lightning strike in any of those images, hey, I came away with a, a time lapse, that's pretty cool. So that's typically how I set up for shooting lightning. 
So Chris asks, when visiting a location for the first time, what do I do for research? And does it include checking out the work of other photographers? So a lot of times what I'll do is I will look up a location on Google Earth. Google Earth is an incredible resource for seeing what is in a location. There's typically a reason that I'm going to a location. So I have a vague idea of what's going to be in an area. But one of the cool things that you can do in Google Earth is you can turn on photos and you can see just a, qu a bunch of quick little cell phone images from that location that gives you an idea of what is in that area. A lot of times I don't like looking at the work of other photographers that have been there simply because a good photographer eliminates so much from the frame and they might have you know, post-processed it to a point where it doesn't even represent what's there anymore. So a lot of times I prefer to just see the little cheap cell phone snaps that are oftentimes a more, a more real representation of what is actually there. So typically Google Earth is the, the main way that I will investigate. Also, just a quick Google search of the area will give me an idea of what's in an area as well. But most times... But most times there's a reason I'm going to a location and I already have an idea in mind. But one of my favorite things now, honestly, is just to go and see. I like the challenge of going into a location with no preconceived notions of what I'm going to do there and just seeing what happens and then research it afterwards. I always get my best photos after I've been to a location a couple of times and it's kind of fun for that first time to be completely fresh and completely new. And then maybe I'll research it the second time. Mark asks, when you teach a lot of people, you start to notice patterns and what people don't fully understand. What two or three things come up the most frequently as misunderstood, confusing topics? Post-processing is definitely one. I think a lot of people that come to my workshops and whatnot, you know, they're very interested in post-processing because, hey, I'm Nick, the Photoshop guy. I think that luminosity masks in general, just scare everyone. It sounds like such a big, scary word that a lot of people just have this preconceived notion that they're not going to be able to learn it because it must be incredibly difficult. But it's actually a pretty simple concept once you learn it. Another thing that I always find on workshops is that people are so married or so in love with their viewfinder especially DSLR shooters where they'll set up their tripod and then they start looking through their viewfinder for every little adjustment that they do. And that's one of the first things that I recommend to people is to forget about your viewfinder for a little bit. You're on a tripod, shoot in live view. By shooting in the live view, you can stand comfortably and you can comfortably do edge patrol where you can look at the edge of your frame, get a feel for your composition by putting your eye up to a viewfinder you're more likely to miss all of those little distracting elements than you are if you're looking at the back of your LCD. Looking at the back of your LCD, you can view it kind of like a, you know, like an image on the wall where you're assessing what you like and what you don't like. It's much easier to do those little things like looking for distractions and just judging overall composition when you're looking at the back of your LCD screen. So that's what I have for you guys this week. Hopefully this finds you all well. Hopefully you're all staying safe. This too shall pass. I know things are pretty crazy right now, but just keep in mind that this is going to pass and life will be back to normal before we know it. Thank you guys so much and we'll see you in the next episode. Take it easy, everybody.